I think so. Okay. All right. Can't this thing work for me? So we'll just use the handheld today. I just feel like... <laughs> well, I, I have everything in my notes, so I do use the Bible. It's all in here. Amen. We have a new preacher this morning. Amen. That's true. It should be in my heart. Some of it is. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day, and we ask for your blessing and for the work of the Holy Spirit to happen in our hearts and that you, Lord God, would just open the eyes of our spiritual understanding to hear what the Holy Spirit would say to us today and help us, Lord, to respond to you, knowing that all of your work, all of your words, all of your exhortations, all of your correction, all of your rebukes, all of your encouragement is life, and we are wise to heed it. So we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Acts chapter 4 today, if you'd like to turn in your Bibles there. Now, just to set this, the, the stage, to set the table, a remarkable thing uh, happened in uh, Acts chapter 3, because on the way to prayer in the temple, Peter and John uh, encountered a lame man who we are told was 40 years of age, who was lame from birth. And perceiving that he had faith, Peter grabbed him by the hands and pulled him up. And he was instantly healed by the power of God. And the Bible said that he began to, he was walking and leaping and praising God. And it's very easy just to read that verse, but if we were there in the temple that day, we would definitely have heard this man, we would have seen this man, and we would have watched this man, because he was doing a dance across the temple. And uh, God had done a great work of healing in this man's life, and so a crowd had gathered to see what the commotion was about, they all knew the man, and here this lame man now is healed and whole, and Jesus uh, had done it, and Peter, seizing the moment, begins to preach his second sermon, as recorded in the book of Acts, 
and he preaches Jesus to them. Not just about Jesus, but he preached on the theme of Jesus. He preached about Jesus being the servant whom they had delivered up to Pilate. He talked uh, to them that Jesus was the Holy One and the just, whom you asked to be crucified, and a murderer named Barabbas was released instead. He was the Prince of Life, who was killed, but God raised him up from the dead, of which, Peter said, we are witnesses. And it is this Jesus, whom I preach to you, in which this lame man, now you see, hear, and testify that he has been made whole. Peter said to his Jewish listeners, you crucified the prince of life. You killed him. You did these things. But you did them in ignorance. You did not understand at the time the plan of God and how he would send the promised Messiah as the suffering servant to deliver and redeem his people from sin. And therefore, Peter says, as he said in his first sermon, repent. And the word repent is a beautiful word. It's not a harsh word. It's a beautiful word when you understand that it means to change your mind and turn around. And why should we change our mind and turn around? So that our sins may be blotted out and forgiven, and times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but there has never been a time in my life where I have felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit, not the condemnation, for our God is not a God of condemnation, but he does bring conviction. And he brings conviction that we might what? Change our mind and walk in agreement with him. And I have never been disappointed when the Lord has dealt with me about changing my mind. As a matter of, a matter of fact, I have never regretted one time in my life where the Lord has asked me beautiful and wonderful time of where God has done the most meaningful work in my life. And I can remember distinctly those times more than I can remember the good times. Why? Because there was something very intense, something very personal that God was doing in my life of showing me the true Dale, showing me the true gospel, and asking me to change my mind and come into agreement with God. And there's nothing more beautiful. You do not have to fear the Lord when he brings correction to your life. Correction is the way to life. It is the means of life. And the book of Proverbs is full of wisdom and full of correction. And in essence, the book of Proverbs says, fools despise wisdom. They despise correction. But a wise man will heed it and receive it. So you never have to fear God when he comes with convicting power and asks you to repent. Because the end is you receive refreshment in the presence of the Lord. Isn't that a beautiful thing? To be refreshed in the presence of the Lord. And my friends, that's just not a theological concept. That is an actual experience for the child of God that you can refresh yourself in the presence of the Lord. And I believe that if I have read the Bible correctly, that refreshment of the soul is what everybody in the world is looking for, whether it be through relationships, whether it be through drugs, whether it be through sex, whether it be through anything that you want to name, people are looking for refreshment. But the Bible tells us that refreshment is found in the presence of the Lord, and it is a refreshment that keeps bubbling up 
It is like the well of salvation that keeps giving and giving and giving. People can drink at a lot of different fountains seeking satisfaction, but I will say to you that Jesus is the eternal drink of refreshment that will never, ever run dry. Amen? So what can we learn so far from Acts chapter 1, 2, and 3? Well, I believe that the first thing that we realize is that God is seeking you. Now, a lot of times we look at this equation the other way around, and we say, I'm seeking God. Now, I believe that. I believe that there is truth in that. But the fact of the matter is, is that God is seeking you. He's seeking you. He's seeking you out this morning. And do you know why he's seeking you out? Because he loves you. And he wants you to know him. And he wants you to have a relationship with him. God is seeking you. Secondly, the gospel must be proclaimed to you. Because you must understand that when God is seeking you, that the gospel has two facets. One, the bad news. We're separated from God by our sin. The good news. Jesus Christ has come to die for our sin and to reclaim us and to renew us and to refresh us and to connect us with God. Three, one person is as important to minister to as many people because Peter and John saw the one man and took the time and ministered the gospel to him. And as a result, over 2,000 people are going to come to the Lord and be added to the church. Four, the best defense of the truth of the Christian faith is a changed life. There the lame beggar now stands, walking, leaping, and praising God. Why should I believe you? Exhibit A. It's flipping out, doing the Watusi across the temple. A changed life. Why should people believe us? A changed life. Four, uh, five. God has always promised to bless the preaching and the use of his word. And everywhere that we see so far in the book of Acts, Peter preached the word of God because he told these devout, God-fearing religious Jews, this is that which was spoken of in, and then he would go to the prophets, and he would go to the book of Psalms, and he would use the word of God to verify, in fact, that what he was saying is truth. Number six, the name of Jesus Christ still has power. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. It is the name above every name. We are to pray in his name. We are to ask in his name. We are to worship that name above all name. And one day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And number seven, and this is where we're going to launch off today into chapter four, wherever God blesses, Satan will show up to oppose. Wherever God begins to move and to bless, you can be sure that Satan will show up to oppose the work, silence the witness, and he will often use religious means and religious people to do it. And that's where we're going to pick up chapter 4 today. So if you have your Bibles, open them up. Who, uh, or if you have your phones, uh, what do you say? Open them up. Uh, turn them on. Okay, verse 1. Now, as they spoke to the people, so... We're picking up, this man has been healed, and we're picking up the narrative here now. As they spoke to the people, the priests, the captains of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. 
being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. We know that 3,000 were added on the day of Pentecost. Now we have 5,000. Now, is this another 2,000 that were added to the three, or is this another five that were added to the three? Either way, we have an incredible move of God happening in the city of Jerusalem. Now, the Acts 2 experience that we read about in the apostles' lives isn't something that has stopped. We see that their joyful worship, their forceful preaching is uh, carrying on. It wasn't a one-time thing because chapter 2 carries into chapter 3 and chapter 3 carries into chapter 4. So the healing power of Acts chapter 3 is leading the early church towards another inevitable step of growth. And having been infused with the power of the Spirit in chapter 2, moving out into the world with this power in chapter 3, the church is now going to experience another lesson of how the church is going to grow under the direction of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what it is? You know, persecution. Say what? Persecution. Say what? Trouble. Right here in River City. Starts with R and then it rhymes with P and that's persecution. Our text tells us that the Sadducees were greatly disturbed. That they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. You know, nothing has really changed in the world, saints. You can do good works, the world will stand up and applaud, and rightly so. I have no problem with people doing great and wonderful deeds in the world. I think that we should all stand up and say that is a good thing. You can drill wells, you can build homes, you can construct schools, you can build libraries, all excellent and wonderful things to do. However, preach Jesus. The world will not stand up and applaud you for that. As a matter of fact, the reality today is that you cannot preach Jesus in many countries without being persecuted. You cannot preach Jesus in Muslim countries where Islam is the only religion allowed. To preach Jesus in these places is at the least going to lead to an arrest, beatings, perhaps torture, and quite possibly a charge of blasphemy which carries a death penalty. I'm not making that up. That is factual. Churches are being burnt down and destroyed today by the hundreds. If you've read the news recently, they've uh, burnt down many churches in Egypt and over 20 in the last couple months in northern Nigeria. That's just in the last couple months. North Korea has death camps set up for Christians. You can go to various parts of India where you will be persecuted for preaching the gospel. And in Canada, we are told by the secular humanists that you can stick to your little pond on Sunday mornings, but don't come out into the ocean and play with the big boys from Monday to Saturday because that's the realm of secularism. Now, I am not denigrating any society or religion. I'm just simply stating a fact that is happening in our world today. According to the Ministry of Open Doors, that lists the top 50 countries that openly 
make no secret about it, persecuting Christians, 34 of the 50 are Islamic countries. Four are communists, six are dictatorial nationalists, five are religious nationalists, and one is ethnic culture. And to preach Jesus and his resurrection is going to do two things in these, these countries. You are going to see tremendous blessings and you are going to see the church thrive under the most adverse conditions and you are going to see persecution. And as the persecution intenses, intensifies, the church intensifies in holiness, in power, in boldness, and it continues to grow in its witness and in its boldness for the Lord. It always has been so. If you study church history, from the very beginning, starting with the book of Acts, right through the first three, four hundred years under the seven or eight persecutions by the Roman uh, Caesars, the church thrived and grew under persecution. Now, notice in our text, while some are greatly disturbed, verse, tells, four, verse 4 tells us, many more believed in the word, and the number of men, not counting women and children, grew to 5,000 men alone. So, in Scripture, you have the first mega church birthed in a very relatively short time. It would not be inconceivable that the believers in Jerusalem were 10 to 15,000 people because it was 5,000 men alone. And it is always like that, saints, where God is moving by his spirit so Satan will rise up and he will oppose. When you move in God's spirit, when you act upon his word in faith and obedience, blessings will abound because God will confirm and honor his word. And you will be one excited Christian because you will see God moving in your life as you step out in faith and proclaim his name and that you are a witness in word and deed to those around you. And the second promise that you will receive is in this world, you shall have persecution, trouble, whatever, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Have you ever been in a group where they say, what's your favorite Bible promise? Well, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. How about all those who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Anyone claim that one? I don't think so. Peter tells his readers the same thing since he lived through it. In first, he says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice in the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings and that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy if you are reproached for the name of Christ. Blessed are you for the spirit of glory, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. I always think it's strange. <laughs> What's your problem? Why are you picking on me? But the Bible says, don't think it's strange. James, bless his heart, says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Sometimes I wonder if he is smoking some wacky tobacco. But no, he realized that God uses these things to grow us, to strengthen us, and more than that, to increase our joy. Paul agreed with him in 2 Timothy 3.12, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus might suffer persecution, will suffer persecution. And Jesus said in John 15, 18 to 20, if the world hates you, 
you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. The personal experience confirmed what the Lord Jesus had told them, that the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ will bring great blessings, it will bring great opposition. Look at verses 5 to 7. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? The ruling authorities gathered to interrogate the disciples. We have a list of the people. Annas, the high priest, and he was the former high priest. Caiaphas, who was Annas' son-in-law, and then two guys that we don't even know about, John and Alexander. Annas is there because he was the high priest that was appointed by the Romans, and then the Romans removed him, but Annas had five sons that then served as the high priest, and the guy now serving was his son-in-law. So even though Caiaphas was the high priest at the time, everybody knew that Annas was the power behind the position. Now, it's interesting that it mentions by name the Sadducees. There were a couple major sects in Jesus' day. There were the Herodians, there were the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees had a leading role in Jesus' incarnation and actually in the carcination of the early disciples. And very very little good can be said about the Sadducees. Now, the Pharisees, they opposed Jesus on religious reasons, misguided convictions. But the Sadducees' opposition largely came from political motivation. And the Sadducees were very threatened because their whole power base and structure was held in place by working with the Romans. And the Romans, basically, and the Jews had a very uneasy alliance. But the Sadducees kind of took the cue from the Romans, related it to the Jews, and then they tried to massage and put the Romans back into a corner. And somehow, they kept a tension between the two groups. In the book of Acts, persecution is largely done by the Sadducees. They were materialistic rationalists of their day. Sadducees denied the supernatural. They denied evil spirits. They denied angels. And above all, they denied the resurrection, which the apostles were boldly preaching. To the Sadducees, the Messiah was simply an ideal, and the Messianic age was just a process for them. These men had gained special ascendancy during the intertestinal uh, Maccabean period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. And in that time, they had created a priestly nobility. They were the educated one. They were the wealthy elite ones. But they were also unprincipled people that collaborated with the Romans and they would sell their mothers to stay in power. Hmm, who does that sound like today? I can't think of anybody. Uh, and they were a minority, but even though they were a minority, they did control the Jewish political and religious life. They were control freaks, and they didn't want anybody rocking the boat. All of that to say, that their motives for bringing the disciples up for interrogation were less than noble. And so they said in verse 7, by what power or by what name 
have you done this? And this is what Peter said. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if this day we are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by the builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we, by which we must be saved. I want to just point out a few simple facts here in Peter's response. The first thing that the Bible tells us is that when Peter responded to the interrogation of these unscrupulous men, it says, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. We're going to discover a truth in the book of Acts, which is very alive today, and we as followers of Jesus Christ need to pay attention to it. And that is that all attacks, all persecution, all things that come against us unjustly, whether they be lies, whether they be um, outright uh, fabrication of the truth, anything that uh, obstructs the message of the gospel was met by Jesus' disciples by being filled with the Holy Spirit. When I, in traffic, I can be filled with the Spirit or I can react in a very carnal way. Now, just extrapolate that to being pulled in front of a group of unscrupulous people who are accusing you and interrogating you with an agenda that has nothing to do with the truth. It is absolutely imperative to be filled with the Holy Spirit to bring glory to God. Peter wasn't angry. I don't, I don't get from his, his response that he got up in their grill. He didn't have a personal agenda fueled by anger, frustration. He was filled with the Holy Spirit, and his only desire was to testify about Jesus and speak truth. And I'm sure the words of the Lord Jesus came back to Peter as he was standing before him, because Jesus said to his apostles, now when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say, but the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. What a beautiful promise. The Lord had now given his disciples an opportunity to witness to the Sadducees. If they had gone to their door and knocked on it and said, can I share the Lord Jesus with you? I don't think they would have given them the time of day. But now they've invited them in front of their very uh, tribunal, and they're going to hear the message of the gospel. And that reminds me that the devil must be one frustrated devil because everything that he does to bring evil to our lives, God turns it to good, and we have a beautiful witnessing opportunity right in front of the disciples. Secondly, all the work and all the glory Peter gave to the Lord. He didn't say, yes, well, as a matter of fact, you probably were watching my TV program, or you probably read my book. You've been listening to my CDs, haven't you? No, he said, this guy that is standing before you is because of Jesus. He healed him. He did it, all glory to God. Here he is, look at him. But more importantly, look to the Lord because it's stated in a most simple and plain way. There is a powerful truth to what Peter is saying, and it's this. All true, all true ministry points to Jesus. He gets all the glory. It's all about him. 
It's all about the Lord. And John the Baptist is a great example. When his disciples were leaving him, a few of the faithful that stayed behind said, hey, all of these people, all your disciples, John, they're all leaving to follow Jesus. What should we do? You know what John said? He must increase, but I must decrease. Listen, folks, when you see people taking personal glory and promoting themselves and selling themselves, buyers beware. It is not the sign of a true minister to take personal glory for what only God can do. Only Jesus can do the ministry and bring life to people. All of this superstar stuff that's going on in evangelicalism in North America is foolishness, in my humble opinion. To put people up on pedestals and to make stars of them and, and of worship teams and movements is the height of folly. Because true biblical ministry is all about Jesus. It's all for Jesus. And anybody that's ministering for Jesus has come to the inescapable conclusion that they're stupid as posts and that if it wasn't for the, 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 the uh, power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of the Lord Jesus, we'd all just stand here smiling, looking stupid. And that's my claim to fame. As I always used to say about me in Yorkton, Dale's a nice boy, stupid as a post, but he's a nice boy. Now, the third thing that I want you to recognize is that in verse 11, Peter says something very significant. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Now, the image of the stone was not new to these men who were experts in the Old Testament scriptures because the stone or the rock referred to a symbol of God. For instance, in Deuteronomy 32, verses 3 and 4, it says, For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Psalm 18, verse 2, The Lord is my rock and my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Isaiah 28, 16, Therefore says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. The prophet Daniel used the symbol of a rock to picture the Messiah and the coming of his kingdom that would never end. He had said in, in Daniel 2, verse 34, after he had described the vision of the four nations or kingdoms that would come, there was a rock cut out of the mountain without hands that smashed all these kingdoms. And it says... You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And then it says that the Jews stumbled over this rock. Why? Why did they stumble over the rock? Paul tells us in Romans 9, verses 30 to 33. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith, but Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay on Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, that whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Why were the Jews stumbling over this stone, this rock? Because they sought the righteousness of God through the law, by self-righteous works rather than by faith. And when they preached faith in Jesus, the Jews stumbled over it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24, 
But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews, Greeks and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Peter tells us to those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, he has now become the precious cornerstone. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 to 8, coming to him, Jesus, as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up Spiritual sacrifice is acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. And Paul says not only is he the precious cornerstone, but he is the chief cornerstone, according to Ephesians 2.20. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And this is what Jesus said about himself in Matthew 7, 24 to 27. He talked about two house builders. He said, the one built upon the sand, but the other dug down and built upon the rock. And then when the storms of life came, not if they come, when they come, he said the one that built on the sand, the house wouldn't, uh, couldn't stand the storm and it fell flat. But the one who built upon the rock, the house stood and it did not crumble when the storm hit. And the application is, so is that, so, so that's like anybody who hears my words and does not, they don't obey them. Jesus said, if you hear my word and obey my word, you will be like the wise man that built his house upon the rock. And that is why Peter in verse 12 said this, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven which is given among men by which we must be saved. All right? Whatever you're doing right now, would you just listen to me for a moment as I read this verse again? Okay? Just give me your attention for 15 seconds. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven, given among, given among men, by which we must be saved. Here is one of the truths about the Lord Jesus Christ that I did not make up. I'm not standing up here preaching my personal opinion, but what the Bible actually declares to be true about Jesus Christ. The Bible says of Jesus Christ, there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. It is only by his name. Is that in fact true or is it not true? When we read this verse, we have to make a decision about what we just heard. Am I up here telling you lies? Or am I up here telling you what the Bible in fact says? If indeed there are many ways to God, and Jesus is just one of those ways among many ways, if that, in fact, is what you believe or I believe, then I would reject Jesus. I would reject the Bible as the word of God, and I would reject Christianity as nothing more than the biggest fraud that was perpetrated upon people. 
Because the Bible tells me that Jesus is in fact either the only way for a person to come to God or he is a complete fraud and liar. Because it's not what I am saying about Jesus, it's what Jesus is saying about himself that I'm telling you this morning. And if what Jesus has said about himself and the Bible says about him is not in fact true, then you and I must examine his words, his message, his miracles, his life, and his followers and determine whether in fact there's any credibility at all to this person called Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to ask you, what do you believe about Jesus? Seriously, what do you believe about him? Now, you might be in church today for a number of different reasons, and I'm glad you're here. It's been very nice to meet you all, and I enjoy people, for the most part. But really, we've come to the crux of what this morning is all about. What do you say about Jesus? Not what do I say about him, but what, what do you say about him? Do you think that Jesus is the only way to have a relationship with God? That he is the, It's what he said about himself. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What do you think is true today? What, what do you believe is true today? Do you have any convictions about what you believe, about your words, about your lifestyle, about your philosophy, about your worldview? What are your convictions this morning? I asked a young adult uh, gal uh, who was not of the Christian faith, I asked her what she, what her, her uh, spiritual beliefs were. She said, I'm a Sikh. I said, oh, do you go to the temple? Do you pray? Do you offer sacrifices? Do you read your sacred scriptures? Uh, do you observe the teachings? No, my parents do, but I don't. I said, well, I'm having a little problem then. I said, how can you say that you are these things, but, but, but what you actually say you believe, you don't practice? I said, how can you actually say that you believe these things, but you do not actually have the convictions to honor them and put them into practice? How can you say that you believe anything if you do not have enough faith or conviction to practice what you say you believe? And Peter told these religious leaders, you seek to justify yourselves by the scriptures, yet the scriptures contradict what you're saying. And so this morning, let me just close with these questions. What is it this morning that you hold to be true? And may I ask you another question? Why do you believe that it's true? What evidence could you give me to give me some type of reasonable rationale to say that what you believe is true is in fact based upon something besides your opinion or your sentiment or that's how I was raised or actually I don't really care what I believe because I'm not at the place in my life to actually really examine what I believe. I believe everybody has their own beliefs, and if they're sincere about it, then that's good enough for me. And so if that were the case, if I was sincere, I could go and rob your house and murder your family because I sincerely believe it. It's not going to work. So I proclaim to you the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning. 
Jesus said, there's no other name under heaven. Peter said, there's no other name under heaven by which men may be saved. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. What a beautiful and wonderful uh, promise. And I, I encourage you to think about what you're believing today and why. I implore you to think about Jesus and the words that he said about himself, the life that he lived, and the message that he preached, and ask yourself, is there any reason why you should doubt him? And if you are looking for more fuel in your tank before you leave this morning, I would love to give you a Bible so that you could open it up and read in the Gospels the life and the words of Jesus so that you could continue your own investigation about who this person was and what he said about himself and what he claimed to be. And at the end of reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it won't take you long, to say, in fact, one question, is this the truth or was this man a liar? And if he is the truth, then I would invite you to get down on your knees and ask him into your heart to forgive you of your sin, relationship with him for the rest of your life. There's something else I want to say, but we're running out of time, and maybe I'll talk a little about it next week, and that is, do you know why these guys were so bold? Because they had a perspective of eternity that few people have anymore. This life and all of its illusionary temporal pleasures is passing away, and it's passing fast. And they had such a firm grip on eternity and where reality lied that everything in this here and now was nothing more than just a joy for them to endure to know God better. What about your eternity? Where will you spend it if, in fact, the words of Jesus are true? I pray that God will open the eyes of your heart today so that you might know how much God loves you. He is seeking you today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word today. Thank you for the incredible powerful statements of truth. And Lord, um, I want to pray for us today that we would have a, a boldness to proclaim you. And I want to pray for anyone that is considering the words of the Lord Jesus Christ for the first time and wondering, who is this person? And is what he's saying true? And it's, it's, it's resonating in your spirit and your heart that Jesus is true and you want to put your faith in him. You don't have to jump over the ocean. You don't have to help old people across the street. You don't have to do anything but put your faith in him today and receive that gift. And you do it by opening your heart and just simply asking him in. And you could pray a simple prayer. Lord Jesus, I believe that you're the only one that can give me eternal life and a relationship with the Father in heaven. The Bible tells me that there's no other name given under heaven by which men can be saved. I believe upon you, that you are my Savior, that you are the one that died for me. 
I believe upon you. And so I turn away from my sin and ask you, Lord, to cleanse me and forgive me that I might, Lord God, be filled with the Holy Spirit and that I might follow you all of this life and into eternity as your child. I ask it today, right now, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand. If you prayed that prayer today, I'd like you to come and see me. I'd love to pray with you and encourage you. I'd like you to tell a person that you came to church with of what you did today so that they can encourage you as well. Okay? Well, let's sing a worship to, uh, hymn to the Lord before we depart, and then uh, away we go. Daniel, Tiana. Sweet the sound saved a wretch like me. For I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Hallelujah. Christ is risen from the grave. Hallelujah. Christ is risen from the grave.
Indeed he has. Well, may the love of God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit go with us all, and all of God's people said, amen. God bless you. Side.